0: you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew 2, we'll be reading from verse 13 uh, through the end of the chapter. Now, when they had departed, and the there there is the wise men, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "'Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt.' And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word, and we ask that you would just simply open our eyes to behold wonderful things from it. Lord, may your precepts, your statutes, your rules, your commandments, your good gospel open us, open our hearts, soften our hearts, unite our hearts to fear you. May we see the glory of Christ, your steadfast love and mercy. Lord, work that in us. Would you strengthen and empower me today? Keep my voice strong and my words in line with truth, and open our ears for the sake of your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. So, just imagine with me, if you would, what it would have been like to have been Mary and Joseph at this time of the birth of Jesus had announcements given to them. They've had all kinds of amazing things happen. And, and, and then there's, there's a little bit more that, that Luke tells us, that Matthew doesn't record, of, of what happened to a group of shepherds. Luke 2, um, verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. One there, could, could you just imagine being the shepherds and having this massively shocking and spectacular announcement come to you? And then when they heard it, they, they of course, they listened to it, and then they obeyed. And they went to Mary and Joseph to see the baby and to tell them all that they had seen and heard and and Luke recorded. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. As you can, I'm sure, understand here, Mary treasured everything up in her heart, Some amazing things that happened. Here here comes shepherds telling them of of angels just speaking loudly, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And she treasured him up. And then other visitors show up. What we saw last week, men of some decent status, whether magicians or kings or wise men, they came from some place far off in the east to pay homage to this child. Yet it was more than merely homage. They actually bowed down and worshiped your child. They brought him gifts, treasures, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Surely this would have been an exhilarating and and probably even a bit of a puzzling time for them. But then those visitors leave, and Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, he's warned to leave the area in order to save the life of the child. So what was a time of joy and encouragement and wonder and awe Has actually now turned into flight. The special nature of this child is starting to be seen more and more. And part of it is even in the cruel, in the fact that cruel men are not only afraid of him, but are after him and and, and desire to kill him. The birth of this child was a threat. It was in some way the, the beginning of the end of evil, of the evil one himself. But that evil one will not go down without a fight. And he will use whatever means or tools he can muster to to, to stop this child, this this whole turn of events. So, as we come to this text today, I really believe that, that as much as any other text, this one shows the need for Jesus to come to earth. It shows the need for what happens, the need for the incarnation. The evil we will see, is it's hard to view, but it's not hard to imagine because we see it often. We see evil like this in, in daily, don't we? we? We hear about it in war and the brutality associated with war. If we think about murders or, uh, that we see on the news or abortion or persecution or genocide or terrorism, and I could go on and on, but, but the evil, the, d- the darkness is not what I want to focus on, nor is it the focus of the text. The focus of the text is upon fulfillment It's on the light breaking into the darkness. It's on God doing what God does in saving his people from the darkness. It's on the gift of God that is with us, that breaks into the darkness and shines his light amongst the darkness. This is God's grand plan of redemption. So this morning, we are going to look at this text and find out really just simply what happened first, what, what happened in it. But then, more importantly, I want to look at why it happened. Why did this take place? And I hope through this to instill for all of us wonderful confidence and awe of God and His ways, His love, and His character. Verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "'Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt,' and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. So as I said, the wise men have left, and once they had, Joseph experienced a dream in which an angel appeared to him. This is, this is almost becoming commonplace for him. He might be just expecting, I, I lay down to sleep, there's going to be a dream with an angel telling me to do something, and, but this time it's not reassuring news for him. This is not news that his wife, that, that, that his betrothed is, has been faithful to him. This is a warning to command him to get up and flee to Egypt because there's a wicked man about to kill his own child. And so though Mary and Joseph have been experiencing some tremendous joys, they had actually hints early on at something along these lines. There were hints of, of something like this to come, in. Simeon in the temple, when um, Mary and Joseph brought the child, and Simeon sees the child, and he says this, he said, "'Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed.'" And so that piercing is starting A piercing of Mary's soul is starting, the the child is being opposed, The, the evil in which the child came into the world to deal with is fighting back. The evil and pain of sin is real, and it's there, and it's pervasive. Now, upon hearing this warning, Joseph does what Joseph does, and he obeys. He got up, took his family by night to Egypt, We're given no details of their stay in Egypt, where or for exactly how long. All we know logistically is that they fled. That's all we know. We don't know who they stayed with. Maybe the gifts that the Magi brought were actually providentially used to pay for their trip, to give them a place to stay, to get them travel and everything else there. But we don't know. But one thing we do know is during the time when they were gone, when we turn to verse 16, we read this. Then Herod, when he saw that they had been tricked, that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, this is a text you really don't enjoy reading during Advent um, or, honestly, any other time of the year. Yet this vividly reminds us why Jesus came. It's a vivid reminder of that because the world is filled with evil. It's everywhere. And this episode with Herod is merely a very graphic example of it. Because Herod discerned fairly quickly, he, he, he realized those guys aren't coming back. They're not coming back to do what he wanted them to do, to do what he he honestly had tricked them to try and do. You know, and he actually thought he was tricked in this process, which is kind of interesting. But it was really that they didn't fall for his deception. And so what felt like a betrayal to him led him to fury, led him to absolute anger. We we know that he had no intention. When he he told the the wise man, you know, come back and tell me so I can go and worship, we, we know he had absolutely no intention of worshiping this child. Though, as Matthew pointed out last week, he most certainly should have. The ones who should have gone and worshiped were the ones who didn't. And so now that his deception has failed, this insanely cruel tyrant flies off the handle. And this, this really is a display of the blindness of sin, of uh, of how it enslaves us. His pride, his refusal to repent and bow the knee, to kiss the sun, as we read about in the call to worship in Psalm 2, and to worship him, it led him to rage. Why do the nations rage? Why does Herod rage? And the people's plot in vain. And rather than simply pursuing this one child he fears, which was still a horrendous thing to do, he decides to issue an order to kill every male child two years and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. This is an unquestionably cruel act, there's no doubt about that. Herod likely had had 20, maybe somewhere upwards of 50. It was not the most populated area. Children murdered. Families had their hearts ripped out. It was a reprehensible and uh, utterly evil act. And it was just the, the it was the evil fighting back. In many ways, it wasn't just Herod; it was Satan fighting back. It was the evil one fighting. But then after that, we read that Herod died. So we read on in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be a Nazarene. Well, as we said, the the inevitable happened. Herod died, and the threat was no longer there, was no longer present. And again, Joseph is told in a dream um, that, that, that that's the case, the angel comes to him while he's in Egypt, which that, that's, that's a little thing to say, but it's actually far-reaching in saying that very clearly God is not a tribal deity, a deity of one region or one area. He actually sends his emissaries into Egypt to warn. He is the God of all things, the God of the universe. And he tells them to go back because those who sought the child's life are dead, And you can guess what happened at this point, right? Joseph obeys. That's what Joseph does. He's wonderful at this. He he did as the Lord directed him. He has a simple, very obedient, probably very deep faith. And we continue to see the depths of Joseph's character in this. But upon coming into Israel, he found out that Archelaus which was Herod's son, was ruling over Judea in place of Herod, and he wanted nothing to do with that because he, he, he had heard and, and knew, and you know none of this is a surprise, Herod was a wickedly cruel man. He was horrible. Archelaus was cut right from the old block right there. He followed in his father's footsteps, was known to be evil and cruel. Even in a time when it was commonplace to be cruel and evil as a leader, he kind of stood out. He stood, stood above the rest of them. And so, in another dream, he's warned, don't go there, and so he goes on into Galilee. Because there were no specifics given by the angel of where in Israel to go, so he goes to this tiny, insignificant place called Nazareth. And then we come to language in the text that, so far in the message, I've read past, and that's language of fulfillment. It's language of fulfillment. It's language of prophecy being fulfilled in what happened. And in some sense, this is telling us why these things took place. So then this vignette in our text reads in verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this is an interesting one. A lot of these, uh, you know, we could we could look back and and you could see, uh, you know, you O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, or by no at least we know that's in Micah. This kind of this here. There is no singular passage that this refers to. There's there's honestly not really anything that we can remotely come close to of a single passage that says he shall be a Nazarene. Nothing. So, what in the world is Matthew talking about? Well, one of the things he says is he says, spoken by the prophets. He pluralizes it. He says just the prophets in general. This is a a general idea. He doesn't give specifics. That's because I don't believe he has anything specific or any singular prophecy in mind when he writes this. But rather he's thinking about the tenor, the, the, the general direction of the Old Testament in regard to who the Messiah will be. If you think through the descriptions of the Messiah, we don't see the Messiah coming in, in his first advent as coming on this great horse and uh, a natural leader and conquering nations and all that kind of stuff. We see a humble leader. We see a despised leader. We see one who's ignored, one who people... Wouldn't take a second look at. You see, Nazareth Nazareth was a pretty obscure and unimportant place. And one commentator wrote Had he been known as Jesus of Bethlehem, he would have had the aura of one who came from the royal city. There would have been overtones of messianic majesty, but Jesus the Nazarene carried with it overtones of contempt. We're to understand the prophets as pointing to one who would be despised and rejected in Jesus as fulfilling this by His connection with obscure Nazareth. The Old Testament constantly and consistently spoke of the Messiah's humility and rejection. Psalm 22, 6-8, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Isaiah 11.1, 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's not coming out of this grand tree. It's coming out of a stump. You can also see the whole language of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected, scorned by men, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. That's the servant of the Lord. That's our Messiah. Further, if you look at John 1, you actually see how poorly people viewed those from Nazareth. If you remember this, it's John chapter 1, starting in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, Hey, we've found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Great. No. He said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. There's this natural thing of, really, (laughs) Nazareth? That's like literally the other side of the other side of the tracks, if they had trains back then. But there's this fulfillment here in this. God is directing the ways of His people to fulfill what was spoken, The, the tenor of the prophets. That's what we see here. But then if we back up to the previous one just before this, the previous prophetic fulfillment in verse 17 we see, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this quote, we know where it's from. This is from Jeremiah 31, 15, and it is used in response to Herod's killing of the baby boys. But why quote this? Okay, Jeremiah 31 is a text that so you, you may be familiar with. It's filled with descriptions of God's new covenant with His people, when He will redeem His people and restore them. The promises are are beautifully woven throughout that chapter, and they lead to a culmination in many ways in verses 31 to 34, which is actually quoted in Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, and said that Jesus fulfilled this. So you can start to see some of those connections, and in the midst of these promises is verse 15, Verse 15 sticks out, it's a a verse that absolutely exudes grief and despondency in regard to the exile and all that goes with it, sandwiched in the midst of these promises and these descriptions of the new covenant. And Jeremiah in that personifies the weeping of Israel's mothers with Rachel. These these mothers have found their sons, their sons have been either carried off in exile or in war, or they're soon to be carried off And so for him, they echo Rachel's tears. Rachel died in childbirth, was buried near Ephrath, uh, which is basically Bethlehem. And so he's echoing this weeping, this mourning of Rachel. And then Matthew quotes this to refer to the weeping that is again heard in Bethlehem. The mothers of Israel's sons are mourning because of the slaughter that was ordered by Herod. See, the tenor of this text in Jeremiah is absolutely appropriate for Matthew to reference as a prophecy fulfilled. Not only the weeping, but it would recall the cruelty of the exile, the the hardships and the pain of losing a child, of losing a son. But I think along with this, and and probably very, very importantly with this, it would recall the promises of Jeremiah 31. Because people wouldn't just go, oh, you know, just that verse, that's all they're going to do. They're, they're going to know the context of Jeremiah 31, of God bringing his people out of exile, of God establishing his new covenant, of, of the weeping no longer being present, of that weeping no, not at all being permanent. And you know, there's actually one more thing that I, that I want to point out here that's just a, a little nuance to this text. If you notice how Matthew wrote this, he doesn't write that this was done so that Scripture would be fulfilled. So many of these other places it says, so that Scripture may be fulfilled. And I think he's purposeful in that. He he just puts it very almost neutral. Then was fulfilled. You know, I think he does this, and one commentator said, because it was the effect of an evil purpose. Whereas things like Jesus' virginal conception, his return from Egypt, and his going to Nazareth all happened in precise fulfillment of God's saving purpose. So this was this reflected something that this was fulfilled, but it wasn't. The point is, God's not the author of this sin, of this wicked act by Herod. God is not the author nor the approver of that act. It was just part of what happened. Well, let's look then at this first fulfillment in our passage, what was written in verse 15. It says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. I think it would help to, to kind of zoom out a bit, maybe take a step back um, and get a larger view of this chapter and maybe of, of Matthew's whole gospel, uh, just super brief here. But chapter 2 addresses Jesus' role as both king—he was born king of the Jews—but also as the true Israel, also as the true Israel, the, the one that doesn't fail. And we see this fulfillment. That actually is, is, is traced throughout the gospel as, as the kingship and, and other things. Uh, Matthew's big on fulfillment throughout his gospel. And here before us, kind of the the biggest connection with this verse is with the book of Exodus. Okay, Hosea 11.1, which is where the quote is from, out of Egypt I called my son, is from Hosea 11.1. And specifically, it it refers to that and and refers to the events leading up to and of the Exodus itself. Further, if you look at the beginning of the book of Exodus, how does Exodus start? Exodus starts with the birth, the birth of a baby, the birth of Moses, and there God sovereignly provides and protects that child who would later come to do what? He would come to serve as mediator of God's covenant with the Israelites. Matthew purposefully, I think, compares and contrasts the birth of Jesus and the birth of Moses as well as their ensuing lives and how they work out. Like Moses, Moses led the people of God out of the bondage of slavery, right? He led them out from slavery. Jesus will bring His people out of slavery to sin. Moses took them to the mountain uh, to, and mediated the covenant there. Jesus brought, them, brought the people to a mountain to Himself, mediated to them a new covenant, his, his, Himself and His teachings, so that, so that they and so that we could live with God, that we could dwell with Him in the true promised land, really in in, in our new creation with Christ. So you see these parallels between Jesus and Moses and how Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. He's the true and better Moses. And so as Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, he's saying that it's fulfilled in Jesus's journey to Egypt and ultimately out of Egypt and Hosea 11, 1 to 4, if you read more of that context, when you read that section, you see the tenderness of God and His love for His people, even though, and this is very consistent with His people, they don't really reciprocate. They don't follow Him. They don't pursue after Him. Really, that whole book of Hosea is one that uses Hosea and marriage to what, what is called a, a wife of whoredom in Hosea 11, 1. He takes a, an unfaithful wife To display to Israel their behavior towards God. Yet, even in that display, even in that very graphic display in Hosea, and actually vividly in that whole scenario, there's hope. It's hope in God's faithfulness that God continues to pursue. God's love never fails for His people And smattered throughout Hosea actually are these these pictures of one who will end up leading the people out of that slavery, out of exile. So, when we take this and more into account with this, we see more of what Matthew is doing in this quotation of Hosea. We see both um, really kind of some direct and indirect ideas of fulfillment as he contrasts Israel as God's son. In Hosea 11.1, 1, in Israel's unfaithfulness with Jesus as God's true Son. One wrote, the, the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, disobeyed, and incurred judgment. Jesus repeats the cycle by traveling out of Egypt, even as a child, and perfectly obeying His Father throughout His ministry. And where Israel grumbled, complained, and lacked faith in the Lord, Jesus faithfully obeyed the Father's will where Israel, where we have failed, Jesus is not. Jesus is setting right, even as an infant and a child, what Israel had completely messed up. (laughs) And you see this so beautifully, in this this story of the the wise men coming and they leave and Jesus and his his family have to flee to Egypt and all of this. You see this kind of recapitulation, this, this reenactment, but done perfectly of what Israel was to do. So, Jesus fulfills it. He's setting it right, and I love what James Boyce wrote. He said, what Matthew understood and wants us to understand is something beyond a mere futuristic prophecy, namely that Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of Israel, the one in whom is wrapped up the true character and destiny of the people The fact that Jesus was taken to Egypt and returned from Egypt was one of God's ways of alerting us to how significant Christ's tie with His people really was. God took on flesh and dwelt with us to ultimately lead us out of slavery to sin. To be our exodus to be our King, our Lord. So, folks, as you begin to see these connections, you see more and more fully and completely the, the magnificence of Jesus. It's not just a story of a birth, and here's a couple things that happened, but you see this grand scheme, this grand plan of redemption that God has been working the magnificence of Jesus, God, God's magnificence in working out the salvation of His people, it wasn't haphazard. He didn't just go, oh, okay, wait, I can't take a left, so I'll take a right. No, He's working it out from the beginning for our salvation. God so loved us that He worked this out from the beginning. I said earlier this was the beginning of the end of evil, and I said in some sense, but really that happened in Genesis 3 where you see the first glance of the gospel where the the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but his heel will be bruised. And it's just beautiful as you begin to see more and more these connections throughout Scripture. And ultimately, as, as you think of all that God has done for us, and we think about the world in which we live, and we see the darkness of sin, and we feel the pain of sin and evil in our own lives and we see it in the lives of others around us and we're we're shocked by that sometimes the gift of god came into the darkness to break in to shine the light in the darkness for us people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light what a what a blessed promise that He is the light for, of life for His people. Folks, that's our hope. That's our hope. That's our joy. This is what we can rest in every single day, is the goodness of our Savior, is the goodness of this child that came, the goodness of the one who is the light of the world. The light has come. And folks, believe this, that darkness will not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for how you've cared for us and given us so much. Lord, we ask that you would just direct our hearts more and more into the the greatness of who you are, into the grandness of redemption, into the glory that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray that you would be glorified in all that we do and say in Christ's name. Amen.